you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew, the 7th chapter, beginning in verse 7 today. We continue on our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, chapter 7. Some of you might have seen me walking around a few minutes ago. Somebody gifted me with a name tag. I'm not wondering where I preached, but I had it earlier. And uh, we're gonna, it's not, yours won't be, per, won't be personalized like that. Mine won't be either starting in October. We're going to have name tags out front, and you're going to be asked to write your, your little name on there so that we can all learn each other's names. And I think it's a wonderful, wonderful idea. You heard uh, uh, Dr. Randy Adams speak earlier uh, via the videotape. He's going to be here October the 15th. I'll be here too, but he's going to be here. He's going to deliver the sermon that morning. I'm looking forward to it. Randy's a wonderful expositor of, of God's Word. Little things. Little things can have a huge impact. For example, Toyota, the automobile manufacturer, world's top-selling automobile manufacturer. The, their vehicles are ubiquitous here in, in the United States. And have you ever wondered how that thing, how that happened, how that came to be? It was just really a little thing. The, the Japanese hold themselves to just a little higher standard. They're, they're more exacting, and the, the acceptable amount of error when it comes to their manufacturing of automobiles is just that much less than most other manufacturers. And of course, no manufacturer can be perfect, but, but, but to what degree of perfection should the automotive industry strive? How about 99.9%? Would you say 99.9% is pretty good? That's pretty good, yeah. But just for your reference now, the average electric grid the cities depend on for power operates without malfunction 99.9 to 99.99% of the time, which sounds pretty good, right? Until you consider that even if globally businesses and services were error-free 99.9% of the time, 1,200 babies would go home with the wrong parents every day. Yeah. 2.5 million books would be shipped with the wrong covers every year. 8.8 billion credit cards would be in circulation that have incorrect cardholder information on those little magnetic strips if we just had the difference between 99.9 and 99.99. Small things can make a difference. And it can work that way with Scripture as well. Sometimes a little seemingly insignificant word can point to, to, a, to a great Truth. In fact, that's the case with the word so, as it's rendered in my ESV translation. Your translation may render the, the Greek word un as therefore. But whether we go with so, or therefore, or so then, or then, there are different translations render it differently. All of those are acceptable, and they all mean the same thing. Verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you. So signaling a, a word, it's a word signaling that Jesus, what he's just said, is leading us somewhere. We need to pay a, attention. You've heard it many times, we should always ask, what is the therefore, therefore, right? So what Jesus has said here is taking us somewhere, enabling us to go there with, with power, the power that he's just spoken into our lives. So what does the word so or therefore lead us? We're going to read verses 7 through 12. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? And we're having trouble with the clicker again today. Okay. 
Let's put it back on the first slide. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask them? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Father, uh, again, so much of your word we have we've heard before, Lord. This is a familiar, this familiar ground for us, Lord. I pray today that, that, that we be reminded of the great truths of, that are revealed in your scripture, of the promises that you have made us, and the love that you have for us, and your call for us to be obedient to the commands it contains. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So verse 12, undoubtedly one of the most famous verses in scripture, and we're going to see today how it flows and how it, why it, and how it flows from verses 7 through 11. One of the things I hope you'll see this morning before we leave is that treating others the way you want to be treated involves an amazing, a profound, I would say a supernatural change in the way you make choices. See, before we came to Christ, our choices were primarily based on what would help us the most, what's in it for us. But now, because we desire to live for Christ, because we want to follow His example, because we want to consider others as better than ourselves, we don't consider what's in it for us. We consider how our choices may help other people. When we were alienated from God and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, submerged in the domain of darkness, phrases that characterize where we were before we came to Christ, our primary motivation was... If I treat others the way I'd like to be treated, then I'll get treated that way too. The thing is, Jesus never made that promise. He never promised if you treat others the way you'd like to be treated, you too will get treated that way by others. The truth is, He promised the exact opposite will often happen. We look back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. In other words, Jesus is saying, when you place your faith in me and trust in my promises, and when you love in the manner in which I've called you to love, there's a cost. And sometimes there's a great cost. Jerry Bridges writes, love is costly. To forgive in love cost us our sense of justice. To serve in love cost us our time. To share in love costs us money. Every act of love costs us in some way, just as it costs God to love us. But if we're to live a life of love just as Christ loves and gave himself for us at great cost to himself. So, so the, the, verse 12 is the key to the passage that we're looking today. And that first word in verse 12 is a key word for us. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for this sums up the law and the prophets 
But these previous verses, verses 7 through 11, give us some commentary and they give us context and they point us to the great truth that's revealed in verse 12, which some have called the Mount Everest of ethics. It certainly is a supreme standard for the way we are related and the way we relate to other people in all of our human relationships. I remember when I was in elementary school, we had rulers that we used. And on the back of that ruler, what did it say? Anybody know? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Can you imagine the outcry that would elicit today? Now, it's not that I recall people practicing, the kids practicing that in my school years. It was more do unto others before they do unto you, but not uncommon. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, once said, The golden rule is more admired than practiced by ordinary men. Put yourself in another's place and then act to others as you would wish others to act toward you under the same circumstances. Oh, that all men acted on it. And then there would be no slavery, no war, no swearing, no striking, no lying, no robbing, but all would be justice and love. What a kingdom is this which has such a law. So so what we have here is one all-encompassing, magnificent rule that governs how we treat other people. You see, Jesus calls us to love our neighbors and to live by the golden rule. When He does that, He's calling us to be a people who care. The entire Sermon on the Mount is about caring. You can't live by the Sermon on the Mount and refuse to care about others. But what I want us to examine today is the why, the motivation for caring. We live in a society where clearly the majority of the people have as their primary concern themselves. They say things like, I've got to look out for number one. If I don't look out for me, who's going to look out for me? So then I ask you, what should really motivate us to care? We have in our text biblical motivation to care. And it does so by pointing us to our relationship with our Father and His care for us. And it reveals that only from this perspective can you and I hope to live by the golden rule. We're motivated to care because of our Father's promises. Again, let me read verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So if the people that you treat lovingly... That is, the people you treat according to the golden rule, most of the time return evil for good. What motivates you to keep on loving and caring? What is our motivation to continue returning good for evil? Jesus answers, Because we have a Father in heaven who gives us every good thing we need when we ask Him. Not to say that He spares the trial. He doesn't do that. doesn't promise to do that. But He does give us everything we need to endure the trial. and, And He gives us everything we need to come out on the other side of that trial looking more like His Son, Jesus Christ. The assurance that verses 7 through 11 give us is a Christ-exalting, God-glorifying spring that feeds and fuels us. It's an assurance that motivates us to love with persistence, to love with persistence those who don't respond in kind to us, who don't treat us with the love and the care with which we treated them. 
If we know God is our Father through Jesus Christ, if we trust Him to give us the good things, grace and mercy and love and peace and hope and forgiveness and more in our everyday life, if we trust Him to still and strengthen our heart in the midst of great adversity, then we can, and I suggest to you, we will faithfully do to others what we would have them do to us, even if they don't do the same back to us. So what Christ does is point us to the relationship we have with our Father in terms of our promises, His promises to us. And that's one of the most important and impactful truths for our lives, the fact that we as believers are the recipients of certain promises from God. R.C. Sproul writes, We exist as the people of God because He has made us and kept promises to His people. We can be a part of a family of God only because our God makes and keeps covenants. God never breaks or changes His promises. They are everlasting promises to which God committed Himself forever. Beloved, because we are adopted into the family of God, we are now recipients of the privileges and the promises of the kingdom. All the promises that God has made have been given to us. It's looking at the, at the, at the New Testament and not intended to be an exhaustive list but some of my favorites, and I bet some of yours, God promises salvation to all who believe in His Son. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There's no greater blessing than the free gift of God's salvation. God promises that all things will work out for good for His children. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8, 28. A broader picture here that keeps us from being dismayed by present circumstances. God promises to comfort us in our trials. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Two powerful verses there filled with truths that bless our heart and lift us up when we feel swamped by the pain and the hurt of life and, and give us what we need to help others when they're going through their season of adversity. And then God promises every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now in the Old Testament, Israel had the promise of a physical blessing. Today, we, the church, has been promised spiritual blessings where? In the heavenly realms, the Scripture says where our inheritance is being kept for us, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.4. And then God promises to finish the work He started in us. And I'm sure of this, Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God does nothing in half measures. He started the work in you, He started the work in me, and He will complete the work in you and me. God promises peace when we pray. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
God promises that when we come to Him in difficult times, He will pour out upon us a peace that is beyond our ability to understand, that is beyond our comprehension, and that this peace will be a guard, a protector of our hearts and our minds. God promises to supply all our needs. Verse 33 of chapter 6 of Matthew, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If we do our part, beloved, to make our relationship with God our top priority, He will do His part to provide for our every need. And that's something that we can count on. We're more valuable than the birds, and our Heavenly Father feeds them, Jesus says. Jesus promises rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because of Calvary and the empty tomb, we can know that this is a guarantee, not merely a possibility. Jesus promises abundant life to those who follow Him. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, He says in John 10.10. You know, there's this common misconception that Jesus is some kind of cosmic killjoy who demands our obedience but doesn't really care about our happiness. This verse flies in the face of that, John 10.10. Jesus didn't just come to give us life, but life to the fullest. One of my favorites, Jesus Excuse me, God promises nothing can ever separate us from His love. For I am sure, Paul writes under the inspiration of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, say nothing. Nothing that has ever been or ever will be, nothing that we've ever done or ever could do, nothing that has ever happened or will ever happen to us can separate us from the love of God, our Father. And then Jesus promises eternal life beyond our earthly passing. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What an encouraging promise. It ought to give us great joy for our own future, right? But think about this. I think about it all the time. It reminds me that one day I'm going to see my loved ones who died in Christ again. And we read in 1 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter 1.4, For by these He has granted to, his, to us His precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. We also read in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For as many as may be the promises of God in Him, they are yes. In other words, all of God's promises have been given to us in order to make us partakers of His divine nature. And all of His promises are positive. They're yes for us as His children. So, so then Jesus tells us that we have permission to ask and seek and not. And, and that, that's not the promise in and of itself. Certainly anyone can do those things. You, you really don't have to have permission to ask and to seek and to knock, the promise comes in the qualifying phrases. He tells us that if we ask, that it will be given to us. And the tense of the Greek verb here is properly translated, ask and go on asking. 
Seek and go on seeking. Knock and go on knocking. If we seek, then we will find. If we knock, the door will be opened. And he goes on to reinforce this truth by repeating it. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. God has promised us His provision. He has promised He will give us what, he, what we need. These are His promises. Of course, this is not a license for greedy or self-centered asking. We must do these things in the context of, of the Christian life. If we are living for Jesus, then we will receive from Him. In 1 John 3.22, we read, Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because... We keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. If we abide in Christ, then we place ourselves in a position to receive from Him. And of course, our motive must be right. God is not obligated to grant to us every selfish desire we bring to Him. James 4, 3 tells us, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's so contrary to the so-called prosperity gospel, the name-it-and-claim-it theology, the word-of-faith teaching, which says that Christians have the absolute authority to create their own world through positive thinking and faith-based confessions. This says God's will includes health and wealth, which believers can and should show or call into existence by showing their faith. And that anything less than that should be repudiated as not in God's will for His children, not the gospel. Beloved, if we are seeking Him and His kingdom first, then our desires will be controlled by His life within us. We will find ourselves desiring and asking for the things that are in concert with His will. As we read in 1 John 5, 14, This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. God hears and answers the prayers of those who ask in accordance with His will for us. This is His promise which I grant you, on, on one side may sound a bit dictatorial, a bit one-sided. Let me ask you this. Do you believe in the goodness and grace of our Heavenly Father or not? Do you believe that He has your best interests at heart and knows what is best for you or not? What this all means is that we, we have all that we need, both for our lives and for whatever it is God calls us to do, whatever the cost. He has promised us all the provision we need to fulfill His purposes for our lives. God cares for us by giving us all that we need to glorify Him. And if we're confident of God's promises to us, in other words, if we really believe all the promises He has given to us in His Word, that they are ours, then that ought to free us. That ought to give us the power and the grace to care for others regardless of their response to us. We're motivated to care for others because of our Father's promises to us. And secondly, we're motivated to care because God loves us. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? 
Or if we ask for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So Jesus points us to the reality of God's love, the principle of his love there in those verses. God loves us as his children. He is revealed to us as our heavenly Father. And he had, I want you to think about how much you love your children. How much do you think Travis? I mean, how, what kind of love did you see just coming out of his voice and on his face for Charlie? And I know he has it for all of his family, but you saw that today, that picture of that. And Jesus gives us a picture here of a son coming to his father and asking for food. What father, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? What father, when his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? No father in his right mind would do that. No father who loved his son would do that. Even though we're selfish people and we love our children enough to give them good things, don't we? And that's the point Jesus makes here. As bad as you are, you wouldn't think about doing such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. So don't you think the God who conceived you in love will be even better? We know how to give good gifts to our children, though we're imperfect, though we're selfish, though we're full of sin. God, however, is not like us in that respect. He's not evil in any respect. He's not tainted by sin or selfishness. How much more does God love us as His children than we love our own children? He loves us perfectly. He loves us completely with not just a willingness to do what is best for us, but with a genuine knowledge of what is best for us, and with a kind of love, a kind of wisdom that is predisposed to give good things to those who ask Him. Beloved, we must not only see that the promises of God are ours, we must also see that they are ours because God loves us so. And of course, God's love is measured by Calvary. The height of God's love for His one and only Son, the height of God's love was the gift of His one and only Son to die for your sins and mine. And Jesus manifested His love toward us by laying down his life. I want you to do something for me. I want you to close your eyes. Everyone, close your eyes, and I want you to do your very best to pull up in your mind's eye a picture of Calvary. The cross of Christ. On the middle cross, thieves on the other two. And when you picture those three crosses standing on a hill called Calvary. Are you seeing it? Beloved, you are beholding the greatest demonstration of love that the world has ever seen. And because He loved us and because He bore that cross, we too must love. When you picture those crosses on that hill called Calvary as you're doing right now, you are beholding the essence and the epitome of the promises of God that are ours in the gospel. The promises that motivate us. The love that motivates us to live out the golden rule. Look at me. Part of what it means to carry our cross and to follow Christ 
is that we will love and care for others, even when they don't reciprocate. Thomas Shepard wrote, More than 200 years ago, must Jesus bear the cross alone? It is as true and as powerful as it was then. Must Jesus bear the cross alone? And all the world go free. No, there's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. Happy are the saints above who once went sorrowing here, but now they taste unmingled love and joy without a tear. The consecrated cross I'll bear till death shall set me free, and then go home my crown to wear, for there's a crown for me. Upon the crystal pavement down at Jesus' pierced feet, with joy I'll cast, my pierce, I'll cast my golden crown and His dear name repeat. O precious cross, O glorious crown, O resurrection day when Christ the Lord from heaven comes down and bears my soul away. Love living the golden rule is fueled by the love of Christ. And that love is no more ev- nowhere more evident than at Calvary. We're motivated to love and care up for others because of the promises of God, because of the love of God. And we're motivated to love and care for others in response to God's command. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So now we get down to the rubber meets the road. We get down to the practical part of this challenge. The golden rule simply states that what you wish others would do to you, do also to them. And we know it's not easy, right? We know that. It's easily one of the most powerful challenges that has ever been issued to us. In fact, if the world would live by this rule, most of the problems that we face in humanity would be resolved. And the fact that we don't live by them is evidenced everywhere in our culture. A youngster in a large inner city housing project was teased by someone who ridiculed him from going to church and loving Jesus. And he said to him, if God loves you, why doesn't he take care of you? Why doesn't God tell someone to bring you shoes and a warm coat and better food? little boy thought for a moment, then he said, I guess he does tell somebody, but somebody forgets. But to rise to this challenge is to become people who care. Fact is, if you and I must care if we hope to live by the golden rule. And Jesus has given us the motivation to care for others by revealing to us our Father's heart, our Father's promises, and our Father's provision. We're freed to care for others because God has revealed His care to us. Knowing that our, that our needs will be met if we ask and seek and, and knock frees us to reach out to others and help them in their time of need. Being recipients of the Father's love frees us to love. The bottom line is that we can be people who care because we're growing into the image of Christ. And as we become like Him, we become people who care. And this is the goal for every Christian. 
Our purpose is to be conformed to the image of God's Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Our commitment to Christ will determine if we care and how we respond to others in need. A man once fell into a pit and couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along and said, Brother, I feel for you down there. An objective person came along and said, Well, of course, it's logical that someone would fall in that pit. A Christian scientist came along and said, You only think that you're in a pit. A Pharisee said, Only bad people fall into pits. A fundamentalist said, You deserve your pit. Confucius said, If you would have listened to me, you'd have never fallen into that pit. Buddha said, Your pit is only a state of mind. A realist said, Yep, that's a pit, all right. The county inspector asked if he'd even been given a permit to dig the pit in the first place. The county tax assessor came along and and figured out the taxes that were owed on the pit. A professor professor gave him a lecture on the elementary principles of the pit. An evasive person came along and avoided the subject of his pit altogether. A self-pitying person said, You haven't seen anything until you see my pit. A health and wealth preacher said, Just confess that you're not in the pit. An optimist said, Things could be worse. A pessimist said, Things will get worse. Jesus, seeing the man, took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. Beloved, may God make us people like Jesus. People who care. To see the demand and the delight of Jesus' teaching, I want you to consider three things He does not say, and we'll close quickly. Jesus does not say, Whatever others have done for you, do also for them. He doesn't restrict our good deeds in that way. The standard for our service to others is not their service to us, but what we'd like that service to be. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The only constraint we have is our desire and our imagination. One of the characteristics of Jesus' disciples today is that they routinely go above and beyond what others expect. Jesus doesn't say, whatever others have done for you, do also for them. He doesn't say, if there are a few things you wish others would do to you, do these also to them. He doesn't restrict our good deeds in that way. Instead, He says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That word, whatever, literally means everything whatsoever. Very broad. It can include taking a meal over to someone's house who is sick, inviting a lonely person, doesn't seem to have any friends out to lunch with you, writing a note to express appreciation. The limit, again, is our desire and our imagination. Jesus does not say, if there are a few things you wish others would do to you, do these also to them. And third, Jesus does not say, whatever you wish your best friends and fellow Christians and people who like, you, who like you would do to you, do also to them. He doesn't restrict our good deeds in that way. He says, whatever you wish that others 
would do to you, do also to them. Others encompasses everyone and anyone in our lives, including the grouchy get-off-my-lawn neighbor, the kid at school that no one likes, even people who don't love you back, the spouse or the child that you're struggling to understand. There will always be challenges, beloved, to, to love people who are different from us, whether their differences are racial or ethnic or philosophical or political. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if seeking and following Him is your greatest concern, if God is your Father through Christ, if you trust Him to give you only what is good, then you will be growing and helping your children and your friends, your co-workers grow in the application of the golden rule to everyone regardless. Those who look different and, and think different, those whose philosophy and political and politics are different from your own, those whose faith practices and religious beliefs differ from your own, those whose skin color and language are different from your own, those whose life choices and preferences are different from your own. One practical way to approach this in your family told you rubber meets the road with your family, your small group. Just go to them and make a list of the attitudes and the words and the behaviors which you could express to a person of another ethnicity or race or philosophical or political persuasion, but which you would not want expressed to you. The list might sound something like this. What I want to be made fun of because of the way I look. What I want to be shunned by others because of the color of my skin. What I want to talk, be talked down to is in fear because I'm, I'm not that educated. What I want to, to never be invited over for dinner. What I want to never be considered for a job for which I'm qualified. What I approve if people didn't want to be my neighbor. But even those questions, beloved, they are not radical enough. They don't get down into the meat, okay? Because Jesus, unlike others in His day, did not say, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. He said, do to others what you would have them do to you, and that's even more radical it means you're to become resourceful, practical, hands-on in our relationships across ethnic lines and political lines and philosophical lines and every other line. It's easy to do what we don't want done to us. If we don't want others to steal from us, don't steal from them. If we don't want others to aggravate us, don't aggravate them. If we don't want others to hurt our families, don't hurt theirs. It's much easier for us to not, to not to do what we don't want done to us because of the benefit that we receive from that. It's much harder to do what we want others to do for us because we don't always benefit. We may do over and over and over and over again, but never see any return. And that's why love is necessary. True love is not built around our emotions it's not about getting what we want. It's not about what makes us happy. That's the way the culture out there defines love. The Bible defines love as self-sacrifice, which means we don't always get what we want. When we're not getting what we want, 
It's harder to live by the golden rule. I get it. But the golden rule isn't about us getting what we want. Jesus doesn't give it to us so that we can be selfish. He gives it because He wants us to understand what it truly looks like to love our neighbor as ourself. When we live out the golden rule, truly love others, beloved, we live as salt and light to our world. When we live out the golden rule, we are witnesses for the gospel. When we live out the golden rule, we live in a way that the world doesn't understand because the world does not give without getting. And we make the world a better place. And we give others a glimpse of what the world to come will look like simply by doing unto others what we would have them do to us. So as we leave, here's one more question for you. What things might I do for another person who does not like me, not think like me, does not look like me, does not talk like me, that is so different from me that I find it difficult to be around them, what things might I do for that person that I would want done for me were I him and him me? May God help us to be people who love and care for others, even those who are different from us, even those with whom we might disagree, perhaps vehemently, even those whom we fear, even when we are unsure if those people will love us or care for us as we did for them. Would you pray for me? Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity you have given us together in your house today, for the opportunity you have given me, the privilege to stand before your people. And to speak the truth of your word. Father, we uh, confess that we have not always followed the golden rule in our relationships, in our workplaces, in our schools, perhaps even in our own home. Father, that's not our desire. We want to be like your son, Jesus Christ. We want to live according to the golden rule. And we're thankful that you have given us promises and that you love us. And Father, we're thankful for a command that we can obey because you have empowered us to obey it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, move in this place, I pray, in hearts and minds to help us love others and to do for others as we want them to do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.